We're going to be in the Old Testament today in a minor prophet book known as Joel. So if you want to flip open there, we'll be there in just a moment. And what I think we're going to see from um, our passage is that the Bible is teaching us that freedom flows from repentance. So we're going to kind of unpack that a little bit. What do I mean by freedom? Freedom from guilt, freedom from wrath, freedom from shame, and freedom to live how we were created to live. So if we want that freedom, how do we get it? Apparently it flows from repentance. So what is genuine repentance? That's our question today. What is genuine repentance? Now, I have had quite a few hobbies in the past year. I love learning different things, um, enjoying different hobbies. And one hobby that I have had has been buying and selling shoes. I know, quite an interesting hobby. So if you know me, you know I, that was my thing for a bit. And there's actually a pretty big market for this, if you would believe it or not. Um, buying limited edition shoes, waiting for a little bit till they go out of stock and they're not made anymore. And you can sell them sometimes for double, sometimes triple, quadruple the price you originally paid for these shoes. It's a really interesting market. And in this market, as it has grown over the past couple, well, many years, but popularized over the past few years, there's been a lot of other groups that have been banking on this um, popularity. Some of the groups are known as like fakes, making fakes. So inauthentic shoes is what they make. They make these fake shoes. They sell them. They try and sell them to other people for a discounted price so that they can make money off of these popular shoes. Now, sometimes they don't pretend to be real. Sometimes they are, you're known that you're buying an inauthentic shoe. And people buy them because they see these popular cool shoes and they want to be a part of that. But they don't want to have to cough up hundreds, if not thousands of dollars for these very exclusive shoes. So they'll buy them. But what it's done to the market is it's caused a lot of issues because certain stores don't want to touch a fake shoe. They don't want to mess around with it. And serious collectors don't want anything to do with them either because they're not real. They're not actually made by Nike. They're not made by Adidas or by Yeezy. They don't want anything to do with them. So there's a couple of like telltale sizes you can look for to tell between a real and a fake shoe. And what you can look for is like how the box is made, how the box is set up. They're usually different. Um, they can't get that exactly right. Or the quality of the build is usually different. It's not the exact same. Or you just even where it's made, where it comes from is different plants. They can't get the same smell, the same look as a specific shoe. Really crazy. Um, but what we're going to be looking at today is what is genuine repentance. We don't want to get caught with inauthentic repentance. We want the real deal. We want the good stuff. With the fake shoes, they can be worth some money, but the authentic shoes can go up to thousands of thousands of dollars, while the fakes can be worth just like nothing. So how do we get the real deal? How do we get authentic faith, authentic repentance? What does that look like? I think from our text, there's three pretty clear things. Um, I'm going to read our text for us, and then we're going to get into it. So Joel chapter 2, verses 13, or 12 and 13 is our text for today. And this is what it says. It says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Let's pray together. 
Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that you've given it to us, that we can learn from it, that we can grow in it. Thank you for Jesus and what you've done for us. Thank you for allowing us to live in the country of Canada. It's not a perfect country. We know that, God, but we are so very blessed to be able to live in a country like Canada, and we don't want to take that for granted. Thank you for the numerous second chances that you've given us, even though we don't deserve it. Time and time again, you come through. And lastly, we just pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal the truth in your word to us today. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before we can kind of understand this text better, we got to know what's going on in Joel. So what's happening in Joel at the time is Joel is a prophet who is called to speak to the southern kingdom of Israel, so Judah. So he's speaking to these people, and as he's talking to them in the book of Joel, he's quoting numerous other Old Testament passages. He quotes from like actually a lot of different Old Testament literature. He quotes from Zechariah, from Zephaniah, from Ezekiel. And what we're going to see is he, he quotes a lot from Exodus. Doesn't exactly quote word for word, but some of the themes are straight from Exodus. And actually one of the main themes in Joel is around this idea of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And that is pulled straight from Exodus during their time in Egypt, when God had brought the day of the Lord upon the Egyptians to free his people from captivity and slavery there. So what we see when we jump right into chapter one, we see Joel is telling the people of an event that has already happened. So a day of the Lord of sorts, he calls it. A plague of locusts has come in and just ravaged the land. It has eaten all of their food. They have no crops left. The food that the cattle would eat, it's all gone. Even the grass that the sheep would graze on. It's gone. They have nothing left. And Joel says, this is a day of the Lord that, the, that God has brought upon you because of the sin in your life. So once you hear that, you're, the gear should almost be turning in your mind. Why? Because for the Israelites, this should be a total symbolic idea of what happened in Exodus. It was called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, they go hand in hand. Not only that, but the plague is the exact same, one of the exact same plagues that happened during the day of the Lord. It's actually the eighth plague that happens to the Egyptians, right? A plague of locusts comes in and destroys what they have. So for the Israelites, this should totally ring a bell in their minds. Why? Because once in their history, God had saved them from those who were holding them down, those who had held them captive to bring them into the promised land through the day of the Lord. But now God has brought upon a day of the Lord to his own people. Now God is punishing his people for their sin. So in the end of Joel chapter one, Joel calls them to repentance and cry out to the Lord. And seemingly they didn't respond well because at the beginning of chapter two, he talks about another day of the Lord. He brings up another one. He uses the same imagery of mass numbers coming into the land except this time it's no longer insects that are coming in mass numbers. It's talking about an army, a massive army that's coming to destroy the Israelites. It says that the, the number is so great that it covers the mountains with shade. Everything that is left behind by this army is like a desolate wasteland coming to attack the Israelite people. And who is leading this army? Who is in charge of this mass destruction that's happening? Look, if you have a Bible, to verse 11 of chapter 2. And it says, The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. 
He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So we see that God is directing this army upon his own people. God is bringing wrath and destruction upon his people, and they do not stand one chance. Their only hope of finding freedom and being freed from this wrath is repentance. So they can choose, am I going to repent or am I going to stand here while I'm being destroyed by this powerful God? And that's how we get this awesome picture in verses 12 and 13, which I'm going to read again, where while God is bringing all this destruction upon his people for their sin and how they have turned away, it says, yet even now, amidst all this that you have done to betray me, to break my covenant, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful, he is gracious, he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So before we get too far into this, I want you guys to be thinking about areas in your own life that you're lacking repentance, that you're holding back from offering up to God. Maybe you take other people's things. Maybe you think, oh, it's just little stuff. It's not that big of a deal. No one really notices when it's gone. That's sin. That is wrong. Maybe you lash out in anger at those around you. Maybe that's what you struggle with. Maybe you don't speak up or say things when you know you probably should have. Maybe you've given up fighting sexual sins. You're like, you know what? I'm just done. It's not an area I'm even going to try fighting anymore. I can't win this battle. Where in your life are you holding back repentance? Maybe you doubt the character of God. From this text, I believe there are three pretty clear points that we can see and we can take to bring about genuine repentance in our own lives, how we can genuinely repent. And the first that we see is this, genuine repentance is urgent. Genuine repentance is urgent. It says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me. What he's saying to the Israelites is, in spite of who you are and how poorly you treated me, I'm still giving you a second chance. But we know that this second chance chance does not last forever. He's talked about the wrath that's coming. This army I'm going to bring upon you if you do not turn to me. If you do not turn back from how you're living, this army's coming. It's not going to last forever. You can't stay in this limbo land forever, right? And we see in all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets have been warning the Israelites of this. They, they follow God and then they turn from God and they say, hey, there's punishment for the way you've been acting. Destruction is coming unless you turn back from God. And we either learn from them positively or we learn from them negatively. And Joel is saying the same thing here to the Israelites. It's coming. It's coming. You've seen the locust plague that's coming on you. That's nothing compared to what God's about to bring upon you. Now, I've been married for just over a year. uh, So obviously I have everything all together. I I know everything I need to know, right? If you need any advice, I'll clear my schedule. Um, Obviously, I'm joking. Um, But one thing that I have learned about relationships in general, but marriage uh, in particular, is the importance to repent quickly to not let things linger. If, um, pretty much all of you probably experienced this to a certain degree. Maybe it was this morning when you came in. But when you get into a fight or an argument or you've wronged someone, when you let it linger, things don't go well. Things don't turn out better. Sometimes we get in our headspace and we think, you know what, if, 
I did that wrong to them, but they were also treating me poorly when I said that. So like, we're both at fault here. Maybe I'll wait for them to come apologize to me. Maybe I'll wait for them to say they were sorry. And as you're in this limbo mode, you're almost making things worse, right? Issues, smaller issues are now becoming bigger issues. Everything that you say to that person or they say to you, you're like diving into what they said. Maybe they meant this. Maybe they actually meant this. And you're overanalyzing every statement. Things that they say or don't say, you start to get angry over, even if they didn't mean it that way, right? When you leave a relationship unrepaired, unrestored, there are problems. No one likes to live like that. It's a terrible way to live. But what we see in the text is God is saying, if you repent quickly, you will save yourself so much trouble. You save yourself all this hurt, all this wrath, all this almost embarrassment, shame, and guilt that you could be freed from if you repented quickly. If you just turn to me and repent, you can be freed from this. And when you live in that way where you just let things linger, it's so much work. It's so much work to live like that. You're always overanalyzing. You're always overthinking. You think everyone's out to get you. You're always on edge. Why would you want to live like that when you can be freed from that? When you can be freed from that. So what I think is pretty interesting about this text and something that's pretty cool is that God is actually the initiator in verse 12. He's the initiator. If we look at the covenant, he upheld his end of the bargain. God has upheld his side. He has stayed true. He has stayed faithful to the Israelites. He's provided for them, but they have turned from him. They've worshiped other gods or they've sinned against him or they'd stopped worshiping him from their heart. And God is saying, you know what? You've broken the covenant. Punishment's coming, but I'm still going to offer you an opportunity to turn back to me. I'm still going to offer you an opportunity for repentance. And what's so cool about this is the Israelites aren't doing what we should learn from, right? We should learn, hey, respond urgently, respond with repentance. God's calling out to them, hey, turn back to me. I'm the initiator to you. And what's cool is God does the same thing for us now. It's the same God that we worship. Many of us would say we're Christians. We'd say we're children of God. We've been changed by him. And we've received freedom from our guilt, from our sin, from our shame. Yet why do we always turn and run back to those things that never satisfied us, that held us down, that were almost like chains around us with guilt towards our sin, shame towards what we've done. Our sin is holding us down. We have been freed by God, but we run back to those things. Why? Why do we do that? Ultimately, we're human and we're not perfect. So there's going to be times where we do go back to that. But God has said, when you go back, respond urgently. Don't let it get out of hand. Don't let it linger. Turn to me. Repent quickly. When you walk away, when you choose sin over God, do you turn back quickly? Ultimately, as I've said, we're always going to have points in our life where we choose sin over God because we're sinful in our human nature, right? But when you do turn from God, your response truly shows your character and who you are. Do you respond quickly? Are you looking to rebuild and restore that relationship? Or do you just let it linger? It's not that big of a deal. You know, it's just God, like he'll be around. I'm really busy with work right now. So I'll I'll talk when I get home. I'll, I'll figure it out later. 
the timeliness of your repentance shows your true heart. And that leads us into our, our second point, which is genuine repentance is from the heart. Genuine repentance is from the heart. So that continues on at the end of verse 12 and to 13, where it says, return to me with all of your heart. There's one with fasting, with weeping, with mourning and rend your hearts. It's two and not your garments. So the heart is brought up twice just in these couple of lines. But if we look at all of scripture, the heart is brought up hundreds of times. There's hundreds of times that the heart is mentioned in the Bible. Now, to a certain degree, you're probably like, yeah, yeah, I know what that means. I, I kind of get that. But if we actually sit and think about what does God mean by the heart, we can sometimes get confused and we can not think about it properly. Some of us may be thinking, yeah, it's your organ. It's inside your chest. That's the heart. That's not what's being talked about here. The Hebrew word that's used here is called levav. It's spelled like lebab, but it's levav. And what this word means is there's a multiple different translations into English. One of them is the heart. That's like the most common one. Another is the will. And another one is the inner man or inner being. Or these are multiple different translations that we have for this word. So with that understanding, we can look back at the text and see when he says, return to me with all your heart, he's not, God's not saying, when you come back to me, make sure you have every single part of your heart with you. Make sure you got your aorta, make sure you got your ventricles, make sure you don't have any surgery in there, make sure you have your whole heart when you come back to me. That's not what he's getting at. He's saying, when you return to me, if you're going to return to me, make sure you bring everything with you from the very inner part of your being outwards. I don't want half-hearted Christianity. I don't want a half-hearted repentance. If you're going to repent to me, bring everything is what he's saying. And then we come across the line, rend your hearts and not your garments. So that's kind of an obscure sentence in scripture. What does that mean? Rend means to rip or to tear, right? If you're tearing something, you're rending it is what the word will be described as. And then garments is like clothing. So this was actually a Hebrew custom at the time that they would rend their garments to show mourning or show great distress or a form of repentance. They'd say, I'm just so overcome with what's going on right now. I'm rending my garments, right? I've got an opportunity for repentance. Now I would say that our young people do this so much better than our older people when they come in with ripped jeans and ripped jackets showing, showing their true repentance, right? No? Okay. But obviously it's not the same idea that's used in scripture. This was a Hebrew custom that they went through to show their mourning, to show their great distress, to show repentance. And actually there's a few times in scripture that we can see this firsthand. One of them is in second Samuel chapter one, where we see David and his men are rending their garments over the news of King Saul's death, or they're mourning over his death. Another one that we see is in Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus is brought before the council and he's being judged whether he's going to be put to death or not. And the high priest Caiaphas is standing there asking questions of Jesus. And he, ultimately, he asks Jesus if he is the son of God. And he says, I am who you say I am. And the high priest Caiaphas tears his garments in great distress, making a big deal about this supposed blasphemy of Jesus. Right? So there's, there's many examples of this happening. And it's a very serious thing. We can often get it confused, like, oh, it's just ripping your cloak. And though it does seem like an overdramatic action, 
we also still don't really fully understand what it meant to them. Now, I like thrift shopping. I love buying clothes, something I enjoy doing. You can find clothes at thrift stores for like two, three bucks sometimes, something cool. But what we don't understand fully is at the time, they didn't have a wardrobe full of cloaks. They didn't have tons of clothes they could just go grab if they tore one. If they were tearing their cloak, that is a big deal. Or they're saying, this is my clothing. This is all that I own for most of them. And I am tearing it over my great distress. Right? We can even look at the picture of Jesus after he has been crucified and they're raffling off his cloak. Raffling off his cloak, not his cloaks. They only have the one. Jesus himself only had one. Right? This is not very common to have multiple garments of clothing. So for them to rip one and tear one, it's a pretty big deal is what they're saying. It's a pretty big deal. So ultimately, what we see from this text when God is saying to rend your hearts and not your garments is he wants you to return to him with everything inside of you. But if we compare verses 12 to 13, it almost seems contradictory. Because in verse 12, it says, return me with all your heart, with weeping, with mourning, with fasting. So those are three action words. And then it says, rend your hearts, but not your garments. That's an action word. So is God saying, I want these actions, but not this action. She's saying these actions are okay, but just rending your garments is something that I don't want to deal with. What I think he's getting at in the text is that not that one action is better than the other, but if you have not repented to God from the innermost part of who you are, your actions don't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you tear your garments over your sin. If your heart hasn't been changed, God doesn't care. God doesn't care about that. But when your heart has been changed, when you do return to the Lord with everything that you have, you will act differently. You will live differently. If you've been changed from your heart, you will mourn. You will weep over your sin. You will fast over your sin is what God's getting at in here. Why would you do that? Because the very innermost part of you has been torn over your sin and you want to live a completely different life. Now, I have been studying a little bit of um, U.S. history during around the time of the slavery. And one thing that sticks out to me so clearly is many of the slaves at this time, the hope that they have. They're treated so poorly. They're treated less than human in terrible situations Their masters beat them. They treat them poorly. Yet, how can they still be loving other people? How can they still have hope? How can they still treat each other with respect? How do they live like that? And what you can see from this as you're studying history is that many of them had found their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And when they had their faith and hope in Jesus Christ, they were no longer slaves to what people thought of them. Though they were actually physical slaves to humans, they weren't tied to that. They knew my hope's in Jesus. My hope's in something that's not of this world. My hope's in something greater. I'm no longer held down by the guilt and shame by who they say I am. I'm who Jesus says I am, and I'm freed from that. And that is so cool, because when your heart truly has been changed by God, you will live differently, you will act differently, and you are not held down to what others say about you. They are freed from that. And repentance heart is the very first place you have to start. It's the very first place you have to start. I've heard it said like this, a repentant heart is the only soil 
in which a regenerated soul can grow. So a repentant heart is the only soil, so to speak, in which a life of godliness or Christ-likeness can grow. So if you think about it like planting a garden, if you were to plant a garden in your backyard and you realize my plants aren't growing, like nothing's happening, I've watered them, I've made sure they have the proper sunlight, I've watched over them, they're not too close together, everything's good, only to find out that there was a chemical spill down the road and it's gotten in all the soil, you realize, wow, that's why they aren't growing. If the soil's bad, it doesn't matter what I can do, they're not going to grow. Right? If, you, if you pour some concrete and plant a, a seed in it, it doesn't matter how well you treat it, it's not going to grow if it's stuck inside of concrete. Right? Where you plant it matters. The soil it's growing in matters. What we see from the text is if you don't genuinely repent from your heart, it doesn't matter what you do. You can do anything that you want to try and grow your faith, to try and live like God, but none of it's going to make any difference if your heart hasn't been changed by God have a repentant heart. So from my experience and just life in ministry over the past few years, I've noticed there are a couple areas that often Christians turn to for almost a fake repentance, ways we are tricked into inauthentic repentance, right? If this is where we want to aim for, why do we end up here? And here are three maybe helpful things that we can think about that we might fall into for inauthentic repentance. Um, they're, they kind of, they're F words. So fake failure and infrequent. The first one is fake repentance. That's something we fall into the fake repentance. So whenever I'm preparing a lesson for youth, or even when I was preparing the sermon, um, to preach, I felt like I hit a roadblock, almost like a writer's block. Maybe you guys have experienced that in school, but it was, it's different. It's different. I, I see the text. I'm putting in the hard work. I'm trying to read what the Bible says, but I can't really get much out of it. I'm looking at it, I'm comparing it, I'm reading the history about it, but I'm struggling to pull what God is trying to say out of it. And I fight, and I fight through it, and I'm trying to just fight through it. And eventually I reach a point where I'm like, oh, I, I've crossed out everything I've written down, I just want to give up. And then I remember, am I even in a proper place with God right now? Sure, God has justified me. I am saved by God through faith in him. But right now, there's a hindrance in our relationship because of the sin in my life. Because of the way I'm currently living, I can't truly live what God's called me to be because I have sin in my life, unrepentant sin. And when I confess that sin and I come to God and I lay it out before him with true heart worship, it's almost like a light flicks on. It's like the depths of scripture are just waiting to be revealed by the Holy Spirit for us to be repentant and to come, him, come to him how we were supposed to. So next would be a question for you guys, as it's a reflection for myself. Are you, does your Bible reading life suck? Are you struggling to read the Bible? Does your prayer life suck? Is it not going well? You're like, every time I pray, it just feels like I'm just talking about nothing. I'm just repeating the same phrases. Like, okay, when you're talking to God, when you're trying to read his word, what's your posture? How do you go in that? Are you repentant? Have you truly repented of the sin in your life before you're approaching the God of the universe? Is that how you're going in? Or are you just going in trying to just get your reading time in, just getting your prayer time in? This is like a fake repentance that we can often fall into, tricking ourselves into thinking that we've repented when really we haven't. The next one is a failure to repentance. 
right? A failure to repentance. As Christians, we can sometimes fall into a false gospel, a false gospel of believing, yes, I've been saved by grace through faith. Yes, it is it's only God I've been saved by grace through faith. But now when trouble comes up, when issues start to come my way, I got to just figure out how to fix it. I got to fix it myself. I got to learn how to do it on my own. So we go to our mentors or spiritual leaders in our life. And we ask, this issue was in your life before, and now it's in my life. How do I get out of this? What did you do to get out of it? And we take their tips and we try and put them in our own lives. Or we go to our super spiritual Instagram accounts that we follow that post really uplifting, encouraging things. And we just try and put them into our own life. If I can just do this enough, if I can just say this enough, then I'll be able to live how God has called me to live. That's, that's not the gospel. And we take these things and we say, okay, I'm going to instill in my life. God said, my mentor said, I need to count to five next time I respond to someone who says something mean to me. So that way I don't lash out in anger. So we count to five, we breathe, we say it back. Or, you know what, my time management at work sucks, so you know what, I'm going to get there 10 minutes early, write a schedule, clean up for the last 10 minutes of work. Or I'm going to spend more time with my family. Or I'm going to be more moral. I'm going to not say the words I used to say. And we start to act this way. And sometimes we might actually become more moral people. But because our heart hasn't been changed, none of it matters. You will still be dissatisfied. You will still be uncontent. And you will not find freedom. Why? Because there is unrepentant sin in your life. If you are living with unrepentant sin, you will not be satisfied the way God has created you to be. You won't. And your failure to repentance is a hindrance to that. It's a big roadblock to that. And the last one that we see in scripture, from just what I've seen over time, is we have this infrequent repentance, an infrequent repentance. So as I've chatted with people over the past few years and examined my own life, I've seen how rare it is for people to truly repent. Think about your own life. When is the last time you remember repenting of the sin in your life? Hopefully it was at communion this morning, but some of you, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was last night. Maybe it was a week ago. Maybe it was a month ago. Maybe you don't even remember. I'm shocked at how many times I asked people when the last time they actually repented of their sin was, and they're like, I, I actually don't remember. I don't remember when the last time I repented. If we're truly changed by the gospel, if we live for Jesus, how do we miss this? This is basic Christianity. This is where we start. We're on our knees from our heart, repenting to God of our sin. That's how we are saved. That's how we're brought back in relationship to God. If you want to find freedom, you need to repent from your heart. That's how we're called to repent. From our heart to God truly, and he will forgive us. So how often do you repent? What's the frequency of your repentance? Right? What's the general consensus of those around you when you repent? What it shows in your life when you don't repent often is actually how important it is to you. If you repent once in a while, just when you think of it, just when it's a big sin, just when it's a really big deal, what it shows is that you have a low view of sin or a, or a low view of God. Right? And if you have a low view of sin, you, you likely have a low view of God. Like, God, oh, it's really not that big of a deal. It doesn't really matter that much. It's just a little sin. No one's even going to know about it. No one's going to find out. It's only hurting really myself, and I am over it now. No. That sin that you committed was enough to send Jesus to the cross. 
Do you think about it that way? Or do you try and forget about it and move on? Sin is a big deal. And when we refuse to repent, when we ignore repenting, and we trick ourselves into thinking we're repentant, you will not find freedom the way God has called us to. We need to turn from these perspectives and turn to the true, genuine repentance that God has called us to. That leads us to our last point, which is this. Genuine repentance understands who God is. It understands who God is. Look at the last verse there in verse 13. It says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. For the Israelites, their call back to God was one to be in light of who he is. In light of who God is, they are called back to him. That's what he's saying here. Why should they return to God? Yes, I'm sinful. Yes, my sin is an issue. But why should I return to God? Because he's gracious. Because he's merciful. Because he's not going to lash out at you. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over their disaster. That's why they should turn back to God. Yes, because of who they are, but because of who God is. When you understand who God is, you will want to repent. You'll want to be brought back into that relationship with God. There's a parable that Jesus brings up in Luke 15, known as the prodigal son. Many of you may know this, but just like a brief summary of what goes on in the prodigal son, is there are two sons and a father. And one of the sons demands his inheritance from his dad. He takes the money and everything his dad has given him, and he goes into the big city, and he spends it all frivolously. Right? He spends it all. He wastes his money. He lives a lavish life. And at a certain point, he runs out of money. He's broke. And as he's going broke, a plague comes in through the city. So now he's broke, and he can't find work. He can't find work. He can't make money. No one's offering him food. No one's got anything to give to him. So eventually he finds himself so hungry, so thirsty, that he ends up living with the pigs and eating what they eat. Now in Hebrew times, this would have been an absolute disgrace to live and eat what the pigs are eating. And as he's in this place of absolute humility, absolute embarrassment and shame, he thinks to himself, you know, my dad treats everyone in the house pretty well. Even his servants, he takes care of and he feeds well. If I go back truly repentant of how I had just abused what my dad had given me, maybe he'll treat me like one of his servants, and I'll be able to live better than this. So he walks back. He starts going back with his head hung low and his shoulders slung. And as he's walking back from the city, he gets to a point where his dad can see him from the house, and his dad runs out to meet him. His dad gives him a robe. He throws a party. He's excited to see him. The dad didn't have to do any of that. He didn't have to do that. And what's so cool about this story, the one that Jesus is telling, is the same thing we see here in Joel. And it's the same thing we see splattered all over the pages of the Bible. This is the character of God. This is who he is. He didn't have to allow him back, but he did. He chose to. He didn't have to accept the repentance of the child, but he chose to. That's who our God is. He could have lashed out in anger. No, he was slow to anger, right? The father could have told the son, you know what? You've taken things too far. You're not welcome here anymore. But no, he showed him mercy and he showed him grace. The father could have let his child just stew 
in his embarrassment and in his shame and just let it build and build and build until he felt really shameful and then he could come in and save him. But no, the father is full of steadfast love. The father could have said, you know what? You don't belong here anymore. You've disobeyed me. This is not your house anymore. But he relents over his child's disaster. And this is such an awesome picture of the God that we worship. The father did not have to act like that. He did not have to accept his repentance. And God the father does not have to accept your repentance. But he chooses to show compassion to us. He chooses to show compassion to us. The Israelites, who were God's people, disobeyed to the point where God's like, I have been relenting your disaster, but I'm going to bring it upon you for the way you've been acting. It just has to happen. But he still offers them an opportunity for repentance. So why do we not think about ourselves like that? Why do we want to think about ourselves in the same view that we see the Israelites? We think, you know what? The Israelites actually deserve the disaster. Look at how they're living. Look at how they treated God. They deserved it. Let's be a little introspective here. Maybe we have lived in a similar way to the Israelites where we have disobeyed God. We have dishonored God. We have blatantly sinned and we're not even repentant of it. That's how we've been living. Do we deserve this? Do we deserve God to relent over our disaster? Why do we not think about our own lives like that? And when we look at our own lives, we realize not only do I make poor decisions, not only do I sin, not only do I do things that God says are wrong, but I'm actually born into this sinfulness. Romans chapter five says, for as by one man's disobedience, Adam, because of Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Not only do we make bad decisions, but we're actually born into sin because of Adam. So we're kind of out on two accounts right there. So the fact that God relents over your disaster is such a blessing. It should change how we view salvation. It should change how we view what God has done for us. If God relents over our disaster, ones who are deserving of the disaster, how much more did he relent over the disaster that was brought upon Jesus Christ? How much more did he relent over that? What did Jesus do except heal? Offer hope. Point people to things bigger than themselves. Love on others. What did Jesus do other than that? He was perfect. He was God in the flesh. Yet, God the Father, relenting over your disaster, sent Jesus to die for your sins. Right? How would we not see it like that? If our God is relenting over disaster, what must he felt like to send Jesus to that place? He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. You want to talk about grace? You don't deserve that gift that God has given you. That's grace that's been given to you. You want to talk about mercy? That should have been you bearing the cross and dying for our own sins. That should have been us. You want to talk about slow to anger. If God was not slow to anger, we would not be here right now. You'd be like, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm done with this creation. On to the next one. Done with this one. But God is slow to anger. You want to talk about steadfast love. How many times have you, claiming to worship God, claiming to be a Christian, turned from him, chased after the things of this world, hoping to find something that's going to satisfy you? 
That's abounding love that God offers you a second chance after that. And he is still relenting over your disaster. How many times have you momentarily abandoned your faith for something that has just brought chains instead of freedom? But we see from the text that God offers freedom and the only real freedom that lasts, the only freedom that will satisfy us, true freedom. And in fact, Romans 5 finishes by saying, yes, by the one man's disobedience, the many are made sinners, but by the one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, by his obedience, the many will be made righteous. Because of what Jesus has done, he's broken the curse of sin that we are born into when we put our faith in him. And that's how we worship him. That's how we honor him. That's how we praise him because of what he has done for us and how he has offered us an opportunity to be freed from what we do not deserve. Sin holds us down. Our poor thinking holds us down. Misdirected emotions hold us down. We hold ourselves down. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done can offer the freedom that we are looking for. And that freedom is found by repentance, by crying out to God urgently from our hearts in light of who he is to forgive us of our sins. That's the only way we can receive true repentance. God, the creator of the universe, the one who's created everything and you, the one who has breathed life into you, the one who's created all things good, is giving you a second chance. Are you going to take it? Are you going to take this chance that God is giving you? An opportunity to repentance. An opportunity to cry out and ask for forgiveness for how you've been living. Are you going to take that chance? Or are you going to keep living the way you think is appropriate? I can assure you that if you turn repentance to God, it's the only place you will find true freedom that you're looking for. You can find a little bit of joy. You can find a little bit of satisfaction in other areas of life. But if you truly turn your life over to God in repentance to him, the freedom that you will find does not compare to anything that this world has to offer. That can only be found in Jesus. And if you put your confidence and your hope in him, the one who's been gracious to you, that's freeing. That is freeing. We may still live in the pain. We still deal with mourning. We still deal with suffering. We still deal with death, just like the rest of the world. But like the people before us, if we truly live our lives for Christ in those situations, we can be free from guilt. We can be free from shame. We can live how God created us to live. And we know that we have hope in the future. That's the God that we worship. And that's why we repent to him because he is good and he relents over our disaster. <laughs>